Hello and welcome to the Max Communications 2021 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Jackie Granger, librarian for the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, otherwise known as RUSI. Hi Jackie, would you like to introduce yourself and talk about what RUSI actually does? Yes, um, I'm Jackie. I've been the librarian at RUSI now for nearly four years. And the library itself is primarily um, a library of military history. Um, the Institute itself was founded as a library museum known as the United, um, yeah, you, no, I'm going to get this wrong now. <laughs> the Naval and Military Library and Museum. So it's founded under that title in 1831, inspired by the Duke of Wellington's aim to professionalize the armed services. Um, after the supposed, well, the victory of the Napoleonic Wars, but also the perceived failures of the armed services during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Wellington himself was too busy being prime minister at the time to actually found such a, an institution. So the baton was taken over by some um, prominent uh, military figures of the period, which included um, Howard Douglas, who was also, um, he was the British, British um, representative in New Brunswick, which became part of Canada. And he was also at one point Liverpool um, MP. Um, so I think it was Lieutenant Governor of New Brunswick. It wasn't Governor General, it was Lieutenant Governor. Um, and um, Admiral William Henry Smith or Smythe, it has a Y in it, and I'm never really sure how to pronounce it. Um, and they undertook an exchange of letters in the United Service magazine, um, which led to the founding of Brucey in the upstairs room of the Thatched Tavern in St. James's Street. So which is quite, <laughs> so which I think was the founding place of many learned societies and, and associations. And by 1833, they'd moved into their first premises in Bamborough House, which was the house that the architect, diplomat, soldier um, Vanborough built for himself in the 18th century. And it was in what was Whitehall Yard. Um, the nearest way to, to, to identify where the house stood now is where the statue of the Gurkha stands outside the MOD near embankment. Um, so Rusi was in, in that building then until 1895 when it moved into its current building in 61 Whitehall when um, Queen Victoria gave Rusi a grace and favour lease on Banqueting House for the museum and plot of land on which the current Rusi building is now. So how do you spend an average day as your role of librarian? I don't think I don't have an average day because I'm a so, solo curator, you know, collections manager and I do everything curatorial. Um, it, it varies so different, so differently from day to day. The library is used a lot for events, but it can mean that I, I'm answering inquiries by email or by telephone. But a lot of the work I do is by email. Um, but I'm also um, doing things, having to put together an asset register of all the uh, heritage assets that Rusi has, some of which were our remnants of the museum because the museum itself closed in 1962. Um, and, and that includes a lot of the artworks. So e even though I'm working part-time, it's been you know, the job of running the library, 
by uh, with appointment for visitors, but also making sure we have a proper full understanding and documentation of the heritage assets, the collections, so it could be furniture, paintings, sculpture, the archive, there's lots of the archive hasn't been catalogued yet either. Um, so it's just, it, so it's very, very varied. And then if there's a members event, then I don't do anything other than issue books to members and deal with returns. So it, it can vary hugely. You mentioned inquiries. I imagine you get a lot of sort of military historians, but do you get any more unusual um, people who want to find out information from the library? Yes, we get, in, we get in, uh, email inquiries from all over the world and probably the bulk of the inquiry work I do is by email. So some can be quite lengthy and time consuming. Um, some, a lot of them are actually about things that might have once been in the museum. So for instance, uh, Christie's in Paris got in touch about a um, South Sea Island, a Moe Moe Carver Carver that was up for sale in Christie's a couple of years ago, which had been one of the anthropological objects in the museum at one time. But we could identify it up until the 1920s in the various iterations of the museum catalogue and not be beyond then. But then it makes sense because the provenance that Christie's had um, identified it being owned by the British um, anthropological museum curator, um, Tom Hooper, in, in his museum in the 1930s, which closed with his death. And then it went into a private collection and had come up for sale again at Christie's. And it was interesting because it was the single most valuable item that, or expensive item that Christie's actually had up for sale at that time in that particular sale. But in fact, it meant I could prov provide a much better history and account of that particular object than I had previously been aware of. What kind of material do you have? Do you still have lingering artifacts from the museum or is it largely paper-based? I would say it's largely paper-based, but we do still have uh, things that remain from the museum, primarily paintings and sculpture that are now used around the working building. Um, but when the museum closed, substantial parts of its collection went to the obvious places in a way, the National Army Museum, the Imperial War Museum, the National Maritime Museum, but a substantial collection of militaria was also published by the Canadian um, philanthropist Eric Harvey, who used it as part of the founding or part of the uh, collections for what became the Glenbow Museum in Calgary. So there is an interesting history, but things turn up in all sorts of places. So I might get an email from a regimental museum asking about the history of an item that they have. So say one particular medal that they had a record of coming from the Rusin Museum. And I, I'm able to track that, yes, when the museum closed, it was given to that regimental museum. So it was a gift, it was a donation. And then I subsequently see that Lord Ashcroft bought it from them. <laughs> so, which now means it will go to the IWM, but that's fine. You know, it will have a natural home. Do you continue to have links with the museums you mentioned, kind of obvious, the Imperial War Museum, the National Maritime Museum? Do you do projects with them? Do you communicate a lot? I'm building links over time, and I think I've been in touch with library staff at the Imperial War Museum, curatorial staff. Um, I've got a, a curatorial staff contact with the National Army Museum because a lot of our research has been overlapping. And also because of the large anthropological uh, collection that the Russian Museum had 
until 1851. It had a huge anthropological collection, it's about 1851. And the interesting story there is when they sold it off, um, uh, Pitt Rivers bought a vast quantity of it, rather, you know, quite a large amount of it. And he stood down from being on the museum committee at Rusi at that time and set up, obviously began to set up the first Pitt Rivers Museum. So that collection is now part of the Oxford Pitt Rivers Museum collection. So I'm in touch with curatorial staff members there as well. So I've got a growing network of um, different connections at different museums that, um, that now have parts of what was in the Rusi collection. So that includes the Horniman Museum as well. Oh, that's interesting links you might not necessarily think of. Yeah. What particular challenges do you have with managing this collection? I would say that one of the, the difficulties is actually that it's not very well known, that it's a bit of a secret collection. So a lot of what I'm trying to do, in, and, and obviously this is why I'm making the early steps into digitizing the collections, is to make it more accessible. Because the sort of day-to-day -day work of Rusi is to influence policymaking over various political, geopolitical, uh, and security issues, the building is actively in use for when, when we're not in a pandemic, actively in use for uh, events all the time. And so that means I can make research appointments for people around the event schedule, but it it but it adds it, it means that you're sort of juggling space and access, along with trying to make things more available through breaking down the other physical barrier of visiting the library, which is is a challenge for something that's traditionally been a members' institution as well, because if you're seeking outside funding. For digitization there's an open access kind of remit that comes with it um, so there's there's a balancing act there but increasingly the researchers that use it are external academic researchers rather than members and i, I and that that's also that's probably a nature of the membership constituency changing needs over time Whereas when you've got what is primarily a historic collection, it's not I'm not necessarily acquiring material that is it, it may be of timely importance to Rusi members. What the Rusi members are using that for are Rusi's publications and research outputs. How much do you get added to your collection per year? Is it a lot? Well, I don't have an acquisitions budget, but there are a lot of books get sent to the journal for review and they will find their way into the collection if they're relevant. But I think I'm also going through that process of um, assessing significance for those areas that require developing and and also how how we support the research staff. So there are two distinct needs for for the library and the collections. And one is to, to uh, develop and exploit that historical material and develop awareness of it. And the other is to make sure that the Rusi research staff are being supported in their research needs. So that for that now, a large amount of material is through digital subscriptions, say to EBSCO, rather than print material. 
is that your main hope for the future to kind of increase accessibility for non-members or is there something else you have your eye on improving? I see, I see it's continuing to search for funding to increase the digitization projects so that what's significant and unique can actually be accessed online. And I know, I know that that has the effect. I mean, I, I've, I've worked with di digitizing collections for long enough to know that that can increase the need for physical visits as well. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that things are available when physical access is difficult. And I have always seemed to work with collections that are physically inaccessible for various reasons. Um, one was when I was at Chawton House, because it's in the middle of Hampshire, and it was relatively difficult to get to. When I was at the University of Sydney, obviously it was all right, but even for other fellow Australians, you know, getting to Sydney if you're in Perth isn't necessarily that quick and easy. But also the fact that when you've got one of the largest rare book collections, or if not the largest rare book collection in Australia, you want to be making it more accessible outside of Australia as well. And then at Rusi, where the physical limitations are to do with the fact that it's a working building. So to enable research access, um, digitization then becomes a really valuable tool. Is that something you've been thinking for a while then, or is that something that's really sort of come to the foreground over the past year? I think from, from when I started there in 2017, it's, I think they'd already been thinking about it, but they'd had a rather, um, but because I took over after maternity leave, I think that digitization had been identified as a way of increasing access to the collections, but nobody really knew how to do it. And because I've been involved in digitization projects in the past, I then started to think about how do we do this? And as a solo curator, I also knew that I couldn't do it alone, that I needed a working partner, which is how I came to Max Communications. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of material are you really earmarking that you want to share with people? I started to think about the museum because I get so many inquiries about the museum and most of that information is in the archive. And obviously that makes it unique. Um, that was where I began to think about how we can actually find ways of providing information about that. Even, even if the early steps was using the three surviving print catalogues um, and making them accessible through a digital collection. But also there was the low hanging fruit because I'd already had the paintings uh, digitized for Art UK. So there seemed an obvious collection waiting. And another thing I can think about adding is a photograph album that's already been digitized, but not public, not available. So it was about how to make that available. And I've actually had quite a lot of fun with working with um, the MA in Digital Humanities at King's College London and Dr. Kristen Schuster, where she's brought her students in. And in a way, we've been kind of mini crowdsourcing how to build data about that set of photographs. And that it's a particular set that is about the museum exhibits. And, and obviously then to be able to put those into the digital collection with the metadata that the students create and do it in such a way that over time, if students continue to work on this set of photographs, we can continue to add and improve the metadata that goes along with them.
Okay, so people find it easier to pinpoint exactly what they need from an object. Exactly what they need. And then uh, my, my interest in the museum, because when I started as a librarian, I didn't know about this history of the museum. I didn't know there'd been one. I didn't know it existed like, like many, many people. Um, I've got so fascinated with it. Now that's the subject of a part-time PhD I'm doing as well as working part-time at Rufsi. And that's been funded by the AHRC through a collaborative doctoral award with the University of Westminster. So the working title is The Lost Museum, A History of Empire and Objects. I think if a lot of the collection ended up in the Pitt Rivers Museum, that's probably very appropriate. Yeah, yeah. What is your favourite object from your current collection? What really um, speaks to you? What do you personally like? I think the one thing that I that really kind of sings out for me is the Laura Knight portrait of the two WAFs, Henderson and Turner. And they were painted. I mean, Laura Knight worked worked on this portrait at home using photographs. So what she did was it was place Henderson and Turner within what had been the bunker at Biggin Hill, where they they carried on keeping communication networks open until the very last minute when Biggin Hill was being bombed. Um, and they, they kind of left just before, you know, left in time to save their lives. And they were subsequently both awarded the military medal, along with their colleague. Um, so that's Henderson Turner. And I forget their colleague's surname because obviously she's not in the title of the portrait. There were three of them. But except Laura Knight apparently said she hadn't been paid enough to paint por three portraits, so she only did two. That's really interesting. So you've got female painters and female sort of defence people wrapped up in one sort of object yeah and uh, and that sort of dovetails with another one of my projects I think early on and I saw a members meeting I looked down I thought where are the women I looked down from the library gallery into the library and thought where are the women so I've, I've started over time to, to pull together the books by and about women in a women's section of the library just so that there's an obvious place where you can find women and I think it's quite it's quite um, appropriate too that now that Rusi has its first female director general, Dr. Karen von Hippel, who before working at Rusi um, worked for the U.S. government uh, and Barack Obama. <laughs> oh, very impressive CV there. So I think she was she was chief of staff to General John Allen for the Barack Obama government. Oh, fantastic. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me today, Jackie. It's been a delight hearing about the, the as you say, sort of unknown collection of Rusi. I think it really needs a light shone on it for people to understand the history of defence in, in the UK. There's a, clearly a few gems in there. Thank you.